and today's returning guest is Katie John Wendt, who is here to talk to us about religion and how it influences views on sexuality and gender. We touched upon it like uh, a, a bit in, with our first interview, but what is mm. your own experience with that? Well, I kind of, I kind of grew up. Um, I would say that my, my my I think as I mentioned in a previous podcast, mm. my earliest gender identity questioning mm. came around age four, five, six. Mm. Yeah. Around that same time is probably my earliest memory of going mm. to Sunday school in um, a middle of the road Anglican church, mm. certainly not pro LGBT, but certainly not anti it either. Just ignorant of it in many respects, because this was in the early 1970s, mm. um, LGBT stuff in, you know, outside of a big city like London or San Francisco or New York was barely heard of no one talked about it it's the kind of thing you hid behind your your curtains if it did exist in your town or village and certainly people were not out openly you know living together as gay couples um and nobody knew that they knew a trans person <laughs> um, so you know in that context yes there were no gay people in the church <laughs> um except that there were clearly um and then in my teens, I actually felt that that, that the faith I was experiencing was <laughs> dull, <laughs> was lacked um, lacked passion, lacked conviction. I mean, the uh, the Anglican Church that I grew up in, it, as I say, it was middle of the road. You know, um, it seemingly tolerated many different. A broad spectrum of views within Protestant Anglican Christianity. And yet at the same time, to me, I felt because I was always a kind of a passionate person and I always perhaps it stems from my bipolar in part and my OCDs. When I did did anything, I did it 110 percent. And I kind of felt that I wasn't doing religion 110 percent. So I ended up moving to go to a more evangelical church and then subsequently at the end of my teens going to a charismatic fundamentalist church. I was always looking for more and became... I don't know. I, I, again, I just went into it 110 percent. I'd always had a feeling as a child, though, that even before having any formal religious education, that God or something or someone existed. And my concept of God, my relationship with God wasn't restricted to a church based view of of them, um, him, her. <laughs> um, definitely them in my head um and I remember walking to school about in my early years age I don't know seven or eight and having an experience of having a really upset stomach it was a very windy day and I remember just talking out loud walking to school saying god if you exist will you please stop my stomach hurting and make the wind stop and within minutes it felt like both those things happened and I had this I've always had therefore this this feeling that something outside of myself existed. Um, the, the rational version of me now would just say, oh, yeah, it's coincidence. <laughs> um, and, and, and to this day, you know, I'll still, if I want to connect with something bigger than myself, higher than myself, however I would now describe that, um, I will go for a walk in a wood. Uh, I'll go for a walk in nature and I will talk out loud to the universe, to the trees, to whomever, whatever, um, is bigger than myself out there. So I still have that belief in, I don't even necessarily call it a higher power now, a, a different power, <laughs> a power other than myself that sometimes seems to guide aspects of my life. And I think I also mentioned in the previous podcast, I've had experiences which I cannot rationalise away, um, including the experience of being sat down with Christian healers who were able to have what charismatics call a word of knowledge or pro uh, prophetic insight um, and, you know, seemingly via prayer, were able to ascertain aspects to my gender confusion in the womb. 
that were not visibly obvious at the time because I was totally cisgender, heterosexual, conforming male on the outside. And yet they prayed and said, you know, we have this word from God that inside the womb, your gender was confused. And, and so there are aspects to that that I find, OK, where did that information come from? How did you know? Because I've known that internally, but I've never spoken that out loud at that stage. So that was freaky. <laughs> um, and that one of the reasons that then kind of made me feel it was OK to accept prayer and counselling from those people because they had this information. I've always used to joke in, in Christian context then that just because you have a word of knowledge doesn't mean you also have the word of wisdom as to what to do with it. Um, and so just because someone has that insight, even if it comes from outside of the seemingly irrational realm, doesn't mean you should act on it um, in, in that particular way. And the way it was acted upon then was effectively reparative conversion therapy to try and get me to conform to cisgender heterosexuality. I definitely went through a whole path of um, increasing enthusiasm, fundamentalism, literalism uh, within my faith journey. Um, and it repressed my gender journey and my sexuality journey because it meant that the options got narrower narrower that the only options were um, marriage for life to in a straight relationship and those absolutely were the only choices yet i encountered um gay people at university for the first time i don't think i'd ever met a gay person someone that i knew was gay or definitely not trans when until i went to university at 18. Mm -hmm. prior to that i never met someone outside of cishet normativity um of course i had i just never knew <laughs> and it's obviously same with university going to the um i ended up being the vice president of the christian union at university um you know preaching evangelizing everything and had some fantastic friends and 20 years later when i came out some of those friends i contacted to tell them by the way um I have something to tell you. I'm, and to tell you, I'll tell you something. Coming out as trans to the world, to your family, is difficult. Coming out as trans to a Christian, you know, and having had a queer sexuality to your Christian friends, that's even harder. And but the flip also worked when I was um, on the committee of our local pride in my city. Coming out as Christian. To the LGBT community was also hard, and when I at the time when I first came out as a Christian to the LGBTQ community, it was fascinating how many people who I thought weren't Christian suddenly then also came out, mm. because there was almost a shame to be a Christian and gay or queer or trans, and but a lot of that stemmed from how we were treated, or how we'd been treated by parents and their faith. And it meant that we were ashamed of the way our faith had treated other queer people. And therefore, one of the last things we wanted to do was kind of confess up to being Christian. It's a bit like probably now the the shame now would be if you if you came out as, um, you know, conservative, right wing, <laughs> um, um, Republican, those kind of analogies. But in a in a queer context because there's an assumption that all queer people are left wing <laughs> um and so that i find these kind of intersections of shame um fascinating but yeah christianity um and certain versions of it are very good at shame and guilt and and shame and guilt kept me in the closet for literally decades but actually it was i would say it was actually reading the bible that helped me navigate out of that um but it was reading it was reading the bible in hebrew <laughs> um and that's again part of my obsessive characteristic is if i want to research something i will research it obsessively so i learned hebrew greek and arabic <laughs> um, um studied theology um studied um um islam and um, studied judaism in order for me to kind of balance my faith 
my spirituality, my experience of religion, and this uncanny feeling that I didn't fit. I needed to read, you know, the scriptures of the three um, main monotheistic religions in their original languages to see if they had been misinterpreted, see if there was some Christians might say I was looking for wriggle room, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, looking for freedom of interpretation that might put a different slant on it. And actually, one of the things I liked most was actually studying um, Hebrew and Judaism, because I found that they were very good at wriggle room. Um, And without stereotyping anything, if you want a good lawyer, get a Jewish one with a good background in, in, in Jewish law and not just secular law because very often there was wonderful wriggle room i loved some of the analogies in i can't remember this in mishnah midrash or talmud in in the in the the jewish sense but there was this idea that there is there is a ban in the bible on um you know on on pork and pigs and uh, and having um a pig farm on the land of israel um and some wriggle room was established that it said well the you know the, the 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 Torah says we can't you know raise pigs on the land of Israel, but it doesn't say we can't raise pigs up on the land of Israel. <laughs> so if we have a so if we have a farm on stilts, they are above the land of Israel, but in the land of Israel, <laughs> but not on the land of Israel. Therefore, we can raise pigs and then sell them to the Christians and the Jews or whatever. But the <laughs> but there was this um, idea that some some interpreters some. Um, rabbis some teachers would look for wriggle room and they would say the exact words were used for a reason um, and words that had broad meanings were used because there was a broadness to an interpretation and words that had a very narrow range were used to make sure it was very narrow so again I became quite obsessed in in researching um, Hebrew language, Hebrew words, discovering that a third of the what Christians call the Old Testament, um, the Hebrew Bible was written in poetry and prophecy, mm-hmm. which meant that you couldn't take it literally. Yet all the churches I've been in took that all incredibly lit. And I think it was moving away from literal interpretations in those sections of the Bible really helped. Mm-hmm. But also I, I studied archaeology eventually. Um, only for a short while, but I did some archaeology courses. I spent a lot of time traveling the Middle East um, and studying archaeology meant that I also became far more interested in studying the context Mm. of scripture and what people, you know, that those apparently killer verses in the um, Hebrew Bible that are meant to um, clobber anyone who is gay or gender different suddenly have a new light when you look at them in their context um when you realize well what the bible has to say about being gay or queer or trans or anything like that if you put it back in its context might be about something a little bit different Mm. um so condemnations about well if the cross-dressing that was being condemned was the cross-dressing that took place in temples of foreign gods, i.e. idolatrous ship, and it was temple prostitution that was being condemned rather than cross-dressing per se, then suddenly that puts a different light on it. And you get passages in the Bible where, you know, um, where where spies are sent into Jericho um, and they flee the place by dressing, cross-dressing to escape. Um, So clearly that was okay. so you end up with um, different contexts, and there are, um, and, you know, and there are plenty of interpretations around. Just because there's also what I would call a a rescue interpretation to a Bible verse. In other words, I could still be a Christian and be X because this verse could mean Y, and therefore I'm okay. It doesn't mean it does mean Y, and just because the wriggle room exists doesn't mean it's right. It, you know, your view of your of, of scripture and your faith might be that, yeah, the entire Bible is a you know homophobic document or or whatever, um, and that trying to rescue it is the wrong route of trying to save your spirituality. I still think of myself as spiritual, but absolutely no longer think of myself as religious. Mm. Um, 
partly, I guess, because I also was, you know, expelled from my church um, nearly 12 years ago now. And I have struggled to go back. We had a transgender day of remembrance service um, last November. And one, uh, one of the locations that chose to put it on w- was an Anglican church. And I thought, I'm going to really struggle with that. Mm. And there are many LGBT people who find it very hard to go anywhere that is religious at all because of the history of persecution, the history of shame, the history of guilt. So mm. for a religious um, um, venue to put on a pro-LGBT service can be very difficult. Certainly if you want to put on an event for the whole community, you're going to find some will appear excluded because it's religious and it'd be better to put it on in a neutral building that is a religious, even if religious people are in attendance and religious people even running it. Um, so there's, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of pain for LGBTQ people about our experience of religion that I think stays with us a long time. Um, because shame is one of the the biggest self-persecutors. People don't even need to say anything, and you do it yourself. But you do it to yourself because of the way you were raised in the religious environment and the way it's fed down to you. Um, something can be said from the front of a church and never to you individually within that congregation. Yet, because of the way religion works, you take it absolutely personally as if God is talking to you and you, you you block it all in um so i think you know the thing that um christianity is the thing that christianity is meant to be known for is its love but the thing it's probably best at is shame um and, and you know <laughs> and guilt and persecution yeah it's it's crap really so i think i've kind of got to a position where there are fantastic bits that are in Christianity uh, and they're both in the Gospels and also rooted in Judaism because the Gospels mm. are rooted in Judaism anyway. Um, so, you know, love your neighbour as yourself is obviously meant to be, you know, the centre of Christianity in many respects. Mm. Yeah, um, isn't always preached or practised. And, and yet love your neighbour as yourself. Those last two bits on the end as yourself is also really the, the root of solution to most therapy yeah. issues. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you can get to the place of loving yourself, it solves so many fucking issues. And I said fucking, and I'm sorry. It's but okay, I'm, by not, all means. I'm not sorry. Um, <laughs> you know, it's. I, I once taught a course actually in a Pentecostal church on all the rude words in the Bible and on God's sense of humour. I never got invited back, but <laughs> I had a great time because I knew I w- I knew that if I read the Bible in Hebrew, God's got a, a you know quite a wicked sense of humour. <laughs> Um, you know, there's fantastic passages in it. There's a wonderful bit where Elijah and the prophets of Baal have kind of challenged each other to a duel over whose God is real. And, you know, and there's like 400 of them and there's just one Elijah and Elijah should have been in therapy. He was one of the most kind of, um, you know, psychologically challenged prophets out there, <laughs> full of self-doubt and didn't love himself enough, clearly. <laughs> and that, and, Elijah's challenging them to say, see who can make a, a McDonald's burger quickest in the middle of the desert, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so 400 prophets of Baal are beating their chests and cutting themselves to get their God to answer and flame grill a cow. Mm-hmm. Um, and Elijah decides to make his job harder by kind of dousing his in water to make it even less likely to combust. Um, <laughs> but, but so he doesn't know, oh, my God, is my own God going to answer even? Um, but it comes a point where he really gets to thinking oh god but you know this baal god if he even exists isn't going to answer the prophets of baal are going to lose and so his own courage gets up and he starts taking the piss out of the other side in this kind of debate over whose god is real and and he starts saying in, in the english language bible it basically says um has your god is it's some versions say is your god meditating mm-hmm. which i might translate into a modern version as is your god currently engaged or on the phone or in the toilet that's why you can't <laughs> he can't answer right now and, and actually in the hebrew it's more like your god's gone behind a bush i.e your god really has gone to the toilet and that's why he can't answer the phone and flame grill your cow for you um and it's 
So there's a metaphor and a euphemism that are used in the Bible, but it's take, literally taking the piss, saying your God is taking a piss. And I love it. And then there are passages where um, there are judgments meant to be on things, people like the Assyrians or someone, whoever it was, saying that God will shave the hair of your feet as part of the judgment. I'm thinking, hair of your feet, what are these, hobbits? <laughs> and, uh, and I used to be really worried because I had really hairy big toes. And I'm like, oh, my God, what's this? Judgment for having hairy feet. Um, and it turned out hairy feet is a euphemism for hairy pubes, for oh, no. hairy pubic areas. And the way you would, sh you know, shame an Assyrian was to shave the hair of their face, i.e. their beards, because to be masculine was to have a beard. If you didn't have a beard, you weren't a proper man. So it's an interesting whole aspect of you know, <laughs> gender stereotypes and everything else there. But to so the judgment on the enemy was to shave the hair of their face and the hair of their feet. In other words, you, you would give them a full-on waxing and, <laughs> and a shave. But it, it was interesting that all, there were all these euphemisms and like the word forearm, the word hand, um, a bunch of other words could all be used as euphemism for sexual body parts. Thigh could be used for vagina and all kinds of things. So they were very good at ways to talk about things that were, weren't necessarily direct. And once you understood all these metaphors um, uh, and ways of um, circumlocutions, ways of avoiding saying sexual words, a lot of Bible passages suddenly think, oh, my gosh, what's going on here? <laughs> it's one of the reasons why the, the book called uh, Song of Songs or Song of Solomon yeah. in the Hebrew Bible, um, many Jews say this. that you're not meant to read it until you're 30 because <laughs> it's basically porn. Uh, you know, it's. And Christians and Jews of certain types used to both used to rescue that book of the Bible um, by saying, oh, it's a love story. Christians would say it's a love story between uh, um, um, Christ and his people. And the other Jews would say it's, it's a love story between, you know, God and Israel. Um, so they were both trying to turn it into an, an a, a, Again, a giant, huge uh, metaphor analogy rather than take any of it literally, because the literal bits were quite um, dripping with honey, uh, <laughs> shall we say. Um, and, and when you read it literally, it was quite erotic. And there are passages in it. Think, oh, my gosh, that's in the Hebrew Bible. Wow. And, and when you read it in Hebrew, it came alive as, as a love tract um and included references seemingly to oral sex and things um the the very things that are condemned particularly in christian churches um although it was interesting when the the, the kind of the evangelical movement in the last two decades created this kind of movement about no sex before marriage type thing mm -hmm. Um, it meant that a lot of particularly American Christians didn't have sex before marriage. And what they defined as sex was PIV, mm. uh, penis and vagina. And, and instead, they put it anywhere else but the vagina. <laughs> I did call it sex and therefore it was OK, which also goes to show you that teenagers are just as good as Jewish lawyers at wriggle room. <laughs> <laughs> we, we will find anything to and I think I did that as a teenager as well, in the sense that, you know, my first sexual encounter was with a guy. And I mentioned this in the last podcast that mm. I had a six month relationship with a guy. And in my head, I felt female. Mm. So I thought, well, that's OK. So it's straight. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, and I came up with the words later in life, um, um, homomental and heterogenital or ho or homogen homogenital and heteromental <laughs> so i think at the time i was having homogenital sex and heteromental sex oh. because it was heteromental it was okay because it was hetero so my christian side of me said that's okay because i believe i'm a woman and having sex with a man it's straight it's fine because straight is good even if it's straight outside of marriage that's a hell of a lot better than gay outside of marriage um mm. In, and there's a lot of projection from from people now, including actually rather sadly some people in, in lesbian gay communities, that trans people are actually gay people in denial. Mm. You know, but, but it is true to the extent that wherever our problem with being gay comes from or lesbian um, or, or bi, we... It's possible. It certainly went through my head at the time that, oh, God, my God, I can't be gay. 
um, but I certainly didn't go from I can't be gay, I can't be bi, I must be a woman because mm. the, the the feelings of gender identity I'd had since I was four or five, and that was like a good ten years before mm. I ever felt any sexuality, mm. because gender identity comes earlier than sexuality most of the time. Um, so, but I think that the religious framing of it all in those teenage years meant by then that I'd been shamed into the idea that anything um, LGB was wrong. Mm. And whilst I'd never even heard of T at the time, I was able to reframe it in my head for a while whilst I did some sexual exploration. Mm -hmm. um, so, but I mean, I mean, subsequently, I've discovered that probably a third of trans people are, you know, are gay and a third of trans people are straight and a third of trans people are asexual or grey sexual. So it's clearly not an issue. And trans people can be any variety of the rainbow or straight as any other person at the end of the day. So it's this framing that we're all kind of gay people in denial, particularly when I have some fantastic trans male friends who are totally gay, <laughs> i.e. they've I they're not erased lesbians they fancy they've transitioned to male and they fancy guys mm -hmm. um so I find that framing absolutely doesn't work but certainly as a teenager with the religious framework going on there was part of my mind thinking straight is okay gay isn't mm. so I went through this kind of heteromental justification of it mm. which kind of did work then when I started then dating girls because that would then make me homomental as a lesbian you can see what you can see. I overthink things. Um, but it's, I think for, for, for today, like a lot of, of young people now, um, in a lot of fundamentalist religious movements, trans is also framed as bad. Mm. So, the, the, the now the internalized stigma would be the same or even yeah. worse in a way uh, when it comes to gender identity. Uh, you know, you mentioned the kind of the disconnect between what is actually written in the scripture and how it can be interpreted and how sort of, I don't want to say prudish, but I'll say prudish, <laughs> current um, Christian leaders are when it comes to welcoming um, people who are different. Let's just say that. I'm not even talking about just sexual and gender minorities in general. Uh, there oh. is, you know, they say that the current pope is one of the most progressive mm. popes ever, but... <laughs> <laughs> and has said some really homophobic and transphobic yeah, things exactly. as well. Yes. So there yeah. is this, clearly there is this disconnect between, okay, what the religion actually was supposed to be and what it is now. Yeah. And where do you think that disconnect comes from? Well, I think also when we say that the current Pope is the most progressive yet, we I think we're talking about things like um, his progressive on issues of poverty and um, being, you know, non-first world stuff. Um, yeah. And... I think we're clutching at straws. We, we, if if a religious says something even vaguely half decent, we t almost turn them into a saint. And say, oh my God, an accepting Christian, um, and and yet turn a blind eye to everything else they're still saying that's quite wrong. It's like you know, there's a reputation the Salvation Army has. I think even sometimes mm. so in America than than Britain, um, but it does good works for the homeless. You know, it feeds people with soup who are freezing. It takes them in. It does all these lovely things and yet is avowedly homophobic. And that, but in the UK, the, you know, the heads of the Salvation Army have said, people, please stop talking about your attitudes to, to gay people, but don't stop believing them. They're just saying, look, it's giving, we're, we're getting fewer donations mm. the more we reference them. So let's stop talking about the fact that we don't like gay. <laughs> um, but we won't stop believing it. But the, the issue that I find, and, and this is when I was passionately still a preacher in, in Christian churches and Christian communities, as I said last time, I was a missionary for a couple of years. When I was all these things, I was always passionate about God's love, passionate about Jesus's radicalness, um, passionate about acceptance of people that were different. I went to a church that um, operated um, um, out of a bunch of things, out of a laundry, out of a cinema, out of an upstairs air bar area in the middle of Soho in London. And many of the people in the congregation, um, this was not an Anglican church, but many of the people in the congregation were 
prostitutes, drug addicts or dealers, people from theatre land, um, people involved in various aspects of life in Soho, which was always a mixed bag in London. Um, and this is this is like nearly 30 years or is 30 years ago now. And I loved that acceptance of people who were different. And there were definite. But I remember at the time, you know, you know, loving the people who were different was one thing. But once they were inside the church, they were expected to then conform. And if they ever fell out of that conformity back to difference and difference then become euphemism for various forms of sin, um, then it was bad again. And the very high, the high degree of love to the person who was different, love to the stranger, love to the person caught up in sins, etc., that existed when you were trying to convert someone ceased to exist as compassion within the church if the person fell back into it if they backslid as we used to call it so if someone backslided into um sin of promiscuity sin of alcohol drugs sex um sexuality any of these things the the high degree of grace acceptance and love that existed to draw them into the church ceased to exist once they were in so you had double standards um mm. but also i think the degree to were accepting of human frailty and failure as it was then considered didn't always extend to lgbt people that was almost like a step too far um it was easier to forgive adultery than it was to forgive homosexuality um in, in that sense there was this moral double standards uh, and it was the things that many christians found was a, absolutely was a step too far and Whilst the church I was in then had really positive attitudes to people who were different, when people, when somebody in the church who had, you know, converted into the church, became a member of the church, and who then went to um, see one of the church leaders about thinking he was gay, then it was like, oh, no, 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 can't go there. That's absolutely a form of difference we cannot tolerate. Um, whereas the biblical message. Uh, you know of god's love is way above and beyond all of that so as i say the you know i've managed to rescue bits from the bible almost for myself the fact that however i now perceive of god is you know god's love has to be infinite and if it's infinite then he's infinitely able to handle difference um and i was once asked in a, in a, a documentary interview you know it, what 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 god would be like if i met if i died and met him and i and, you know what what would my god be like and i said well my god would be like me and i don't mean trans and queer and bipolar <laughs> but if my if my god didn't accept and like me then he wasn't my god in that sense so in the end there's this irony that the bible talks about mankind humankind being made in god's image but the version of god that i guess i can accept now is a god made in my image which actually in biblical terms is almost idolatry therefore i'm a complete sinner again but the, it's i've got to a place of loving myself and therefore the god i need if they exist is a god who like me can love myself and that's loving myself not in order for me to change but as i am now and i am now happy I am now content. Um, I am now fully accepting of everything that I am, of my sexuality, of my non-marital state, um, of my open relationship, of my mental health. I don't need to go to anyone to be healed or forgiven of those things. They are now all part of my accepted life. So the God I would have to believe in would have to embrace that. You know, and Christians have got a very, as far as I'm concerned, as well, a very narrow view of this heterosexual marriage, whereas the varieties of marriage that existed in, in, in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, are huge. There's probably a dozen different marriage types. You know, there's polyamory. Um, there's, you know, marrying your maid or, or even just sleeping with your maid, but not marrying her in order to produce a child to adopt into your family um they were sleeping with close family relations but not too close you know well probably too, very close at the beginning because otherwise we wouldn't have got a human race um 
but subsequently still certain versions allowed um you know marrying two sisters at the same time you know um there's so much variety within it and yet almost almost that but at the same time homosexuality was a step too far um yet there's interesting passages around gender in the sense that uh, there are references to, to eunuchs in every section of the bible and i find it interesting again as i say what we call what christian lgbtq people can do is we can be looking for rescue verses in the bible something to redeem the apparently homophobic transphobic book i think oh my god but this bit's okay um or as i say the wriggle room in these bible verses but so you often find that gay people will look gay theologians and things will look at the references to eunuchs and say actually eunuchs is a metaphor for gay people and everything that god says is positive about eunuchs is about gay people um and then you might get trans theologians saying but the stuff about eunuchs is far more closely relating to trans people because they're actually getting sex changes almost <laughs> or at least sex removal um and so we're looking at the eunuch references to save the bible and to allow us to be christian and trans um and yet the interesting thing is again if you do the contextual study you discover that not all eunuchs were circumcised so you mm -hmm. could be a eunuch without being circumcised it's almost like self-id transgender <laughs> <laughs> um, but i guess I, I think the the passage that stayed with me that was kind of my rescue passage um was the the bit in isaiah isaiah 56 verses 4 and 5 that says for for god says to the eunuchs to the circumcised to those who keep my sabbaths and decide for that in which i take pleasure who take hold of my covenant i will give them in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name that is good or better than sons and daughters i will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off and in the Hebrew, it's a great wordplay there because a eunuch means someone who's cut off almost. <laughs> and God says, I'm going to give you a name that shall not be cut off. And so it's the wonderful Hebrew kind of wordplay there. And giving them a memorial, uh, the word giving them a, 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 a memorial and a name are words that were often used as euphemisms for things like uh, penis. <laughs> so it's a wordplay on losing a penis and gaining a virtual penis, which is... Mm like a phalloplasty uh, a theological <laughs> phalloplasty i like that <laughs> but the but it was the fact that god says in that passage that i give to them in my house and within my walls a name and a nature that is because name and nature in hebrew were part of the same almost mm -hmm. that is good or better than sons and daughters and again to me that's like not now i'm thinking that's like non-binary acceptance mm -hmm. because god's not saying i'm going to heal you and make you into fully sons and fully daughters i mean jesus you know the, the the legends the beliefs the miracles however you want to view them of jesus was that he could heal the sick and um cure the blind so mm. if god is capable of anything he could cure the eunuchs and make them fully cisgender bodied all over again mm. but god doesn't say i'm going to cure you i don't regard your bodily state as as a state of sin mm. he says i'm gonna give you a reputation better than that of sons and daughters now um so to me that's like saying i regard people outside of the gender binary be it lgbtq intersex non-binary or whatever as better than that or e equal and or better to sons and daughters mm -hmm. and so for me that is my crux hebrew bible old testament rescue verse i you know as i say that's my wriggle room it's the verse i see well hold on God's been quite open-minded here. Mm. You know, the Archbishop of Canterbury and various people have recently been saying, actually, God is a they. Mm. Um, feminists have been saying for years, God is a she. <laughs> uh, well, if God were really a feminist, God might say a few better things in the Bible. Um, but I, I, you know, I like the possibility that God thinks outside the box, outside of the gender binary in that verse. And then when I went back and studied you know the book of genesis bereshit in hebrew mm. in its original language it comes up with some quite different possibilities um there you know the language of and, and god created them male and female you know they and them oh that's how we identify the human race is all non-binary uh, uh, until we choose our, our path in life um the, the creation of adam the first human being 
rather than the first man because Adam was the first I'm, 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 I don't necessarily believe at all in the in biblical <laughs> literalism anymore but I like exploring biblical literalism because of the number of people who do believe it and for whom that then causes a problem so I play with biblical literalism to explore its possibilities and, and then afterwards I might say by the way it's all myth but the idea that that biblical literalists that creationists um would take the creation of adam as a, as a literal recent story fine take it as a literal recent story so god adam but literally in the hebrew adam is the first human being not the first man to some extent because adam then has something removed from him to create woman so woman was taken out of man and then became her own being so Ad, Adam was clearly man and woman and then lost his woman mm-hmm. in that sense. So this is, this is a, a taking literalism to the nth degree. Um, and the, the phrase people are, co- are, are commonly aware of is that it was a rib that was taken out of Adam to create a woman. Mm-hmm. And there's this whole kind of myth of the missing rib stuff. Um, but the the Hebrew word for, for, for rib there, I think it's called, I think it's so old and rusty, I think it's cellar. Um, isn't ordinarily used for the word rib it's ordinarily used for one part of a pair of things like um two two mountains either side of a valley or two doors um that two like a pair of swing doors almost like and so it's like when you're saying the rib was taken out of adam you're saying in hebrew really it should be a full half was taken out of adam to create woman not just like one small component and then she was grown from it and that actually coincides with uh, Greek spiritual myths about yeah. the creation of mankind. And androgyny. That, yeah, that we were originally these um, a- a- androgynous yeah. dual beings that, that were split by the gods to stop us becoming too powerful. And we were condemned to... Um, it's the idea that relationships were this the, the great judgment of God on mankind, is that we would be condemned to spend the rest of our lives searching for our soulmates. Which is actually quite accurate. <laughs> we spend so much time in therapy and in life going over old relationships, worried about whether we'll ever get a new relationship. And and it consumes us to the point of being unable to achieve anything else in life half the time when our whole life is obsessed about finding another half. Mm-hmm. Um but the the bit back in Genesis though, therefore, has quite an interesting androgynous non-binary then gender split creation Mm -hmm. story and again i love being overtly literal and pointing out the fact that obviously if one was going to be scientific about this Mm -hmm. um that eve had the same dna as adam Mm -hmm. and the same by the same dna she presumably must have had the same chromosomes as Mm -hmm. adam so that makes if we're taking adam as a man it makes eve a man who became a woman (laughs) <laughs> so you see where I'm going with this mm. the Eve was the first transsexual <laughs> and clearly trans people who are Christians are okay to have relationships because Eve had a relationship with Adam to produce mm. Cain and Abel blah 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 and you can see it goes on in my head that overt literalism can be both quite funny and quite liberating mm. and it's quite possible therefore to be a, a, a literalistic evangelical Christian and say that actually the second person created on planet earth was a transsexual (laughs) you know that the language isn't isn't there the label isn't there but the the operation is god (laughs) was the first transgender surgeon god did ran the first gender identity clinic in eden (laughs) takes adam puts him to sleep knocks him out with an anesthetic and he wakes up and he's missing a few bits actually hits his rib that's missing rather than you know his phallus but you know but a part of his body has been removed and it's been turned into a woman you know i'm thinking oh my god this is like this gender identity clinic operating in eden it's fascinating um but that is one of the things you see and that's a very kind of jewish talmudic way of interpreting scripture anyway so it's it's kind of reading between the lines sometimes um because the other thing is nowhere really condemns homosexuality because the word didn't exist you know various acts might have existed and then it's the context of those acts i mean the bible condemns um some forms of sex 
um, outside of um, conventional marriage, for example, in some passages and completely inconsistently across the entire Bible. But the but equally, there are descriptions that seemingly talk about possibility that ver- some versions of um, same sex were acceptable and, and some weren't. And sometimes it's the context that was wrong, not the act of the sex itself. Mm-hmm. Like there's a passage that can be translated as, you know, you know, a man should not sleep with a woman and uh, sleep with another man as one sleeps with a woman. Why is the type of sex? You know, saying you can sleep with a man as long as you do it in a different way. Um, <laughs> some translations of it suggest that, you know, the word is used to describe your mother's bed. So when it says a man shall not sleep with another man like he does with a woman on his mother's bed, the condemnation um, is actually of not doing it on your parents' bed, but you could do it elsewhere. That's fine. <laughs> you know, and again, that you shouldn't do homosexuality if it relates to an idolatrous context of a foreign. And so there's all and or and also pederasty, pedophilia, those things were condemned that, you know, two adult men can have sex together, but an adult man and a younger boy shouldn't because that's abuse, mm-hmm. um, which was common in the ancient world. And you can see why the Bible would condemn um, paedophilia and abuse and lots of the passages that seemingly condemn homosexuality could you could replace the word in our modern versions that use homosexuality or sodomy if you replaced it with paedophilia every time everyone would agree mm-hmm. um i mean there's a whole extra di- different question if you start talking about ephebophilia and hebophilia mm-hmm. the you know the types of um sex with younger people who aren't mm-hmm. children because the ancient world the age of consent was quite different mm-hmm. You know, Mary and Joseph, the story of Mary, the idea is that she's probably a teenage girl anyway. Um, and the only person to have sex with her was the Holy Spirit, allegedly. <laughs> um, but the the passage, the word homosexual wasn't invented until the 1860s. So the condemnation by evangelical Christians now of, of homosexuality um, in the Bible is a projection of 19th century Victorian language back onto the Bible. Um, and so we've we come up with a new word, a, a new form of a, the discussion of homosexuality and, and the language of homosexuality, transsexuality came about by therapists. Yeah. It was psychotherapists in Germany created uh, most of the language. They tried some other words first, like urinism. That wasn't going to didn't last very well. Um, but and, and inverts. But they came up with language to describe their clients and very often themselves, um, that was different to the norm. um, The very language of what was then meant to be helping people suddenly became the language that was to apologise people as well. The word heterosexual only came into existence because we created the word homosexual and suddenly needed an opposite to it. So the word heterosexuals didn't exist until homosexuals did. Homosexuals came first. Mm -hmm. Um, I could make some jokes there. um, The... (laughs) And the same is is true of trans now. And there's a big fuss from some quarters about the use of the word cisgender. But once you create the concept of transgender, then the word cisgender has to exist as a, as, as an opposite or a comparative to it. Um, it's not a slur. It's just to describe a difference. So we we've created language and language both traps us and frees us. A lot of LGBTIQAP dot 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 people in the alphabet soup for us labels are liberating because we find communities through them it's like christians feel that they can find another christian and there's instant community actually it's not true because there's probably twenty thousand different denominations and they all disagree with each other and once they find out which denomination you are then they suddenly think ah but your type aren't going to heaven you know only protestants go to heaven catholics actually believe in a false version of god or actually you're an anglican you're too liberal that you don't really believe in god it's only the evangelicals going there well the evangelicals aren't going to heaven actually because it's only the charismatics who are going there because they're the ones who've been truly born again and can speak with tongues so internally the judgment between the denominations is rife um and actually we do get that in lgbtiq communities as well we go you're the wrong kind of trans the wrong kind of gay the wrong kind of lesbian etc um and bisexuals are all clearly said because they can't make up their minds you know the, the, the biphobia that comes from lbt lbt people is quite extreme as well there's probably more biphobia from within lgbt communities than there is from outside of it um but we use tools to align ourselves and it's and the labels are based on language and 
the Bible is language. And at the end of the day, I find it, it critical for self-acceptance and acceptance of others to take that language with a healthy, healthy dose of um, positive interpretation, a healthy um, dose of possibility. And instead of using language to contain, language to narrow, use language that broadens. I mean, the Hebrew Bible has something like 8,000 unique words in it. Um, and in fact, all of those 8,000 words really derive from around 15 to 1,500 to 2,000 unique root words. So really, it's a very narrow vocabulary. But the narrow vocabulary gets translated into a very broad foreign language, i.e., for example, English. English is a foreign language to the Bible. Um, everyone who speaks English thinks everyone else is foreigners, but actually it's the other way around. Um, um, but so, for example, the Hebrew word uh, davar, davar, it, it means, seemingly means word. And yet, actually, in the, the, the King James Bible, the first English translation, well, not the first English translation, but the first official one that everyone accepted, it's translated by 85 different English words, <laughs> that one Hebrew word. So if you want wriggle room, there's wriggle room in every bloody Hebrew word. Um, and if you, so for me, if you take a back step and think, well, hold on, what is the primary... Um, attitude gospel description of god by both jews and christians um uh, uh, you know and uh, we could take this even further into islam and everything else but let's stick to judeo christianity is that god is love so if you take a step back and say that god is love now how do i interpret this verse and you have got wriggle room you should interpret it down the line of god is love as in terms of which one you choose so in that sense, uh, you know, there's plenty of queer room, and you know, in terms of biblical interpretation for Christians who are LGBTIQ to find love for themselves in the Bible. But there's also a hell of a lot of problematic passages as well. But um, and I don't think we need to try and redeem them um, by trying to, you know, say, oh, my God, this doesn't mean that it means this. No, sometimes there's some terrible stuff in there, you know. Um, there's there's misogyny plenty <laughs> you know before we even get into apparent homophobia um but if you take a step back and just i mean the the jews also looked at the idea that you know the bible's full of laws there are um oh, i can't remember what's the number 613 or something in the old testament in the in the hebrew bible um they used to divide it into i think it was oh i can't remember the numbers now 200 uh 365 um negative laws thou shalt not do something and 248 positive laws thou shalt do this and it's kind of i remember learning it as a youngster thinking oh it's like one for every day of the year that you should do wrong <laughs> shouldn't do wrong etc and one for every bone of the body they used to count then but the but they said but hold on this is this is far too heavy a weight for anyone to learn and memorize all these laws so you know where's a summary and then they go oh yeah there's a summary the ten commandments and then they go well the ten commandments even that's too many for people to fathom and remember. How could we reduce the laws further? And they say, oh, we could reduce it to just do X, Y, and Z. Um, and then someone said, oh, no, you could reduce it even further. Just do these two things. And at the end of the day, that's exactly what Jesus did say. You know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, etc. Those two things, love God and love yourself and love your neighbor. But hold on, it's love for everyone. Oh, good, let's get into kind of christian polyamory no um, <laughs> it's open relationships everyone but if that's the basis for it then any interpretation that comes out of it that doesn't have love at its center isn't biblical ironically um so love has got to be right and judgment in that sense has got to be wrong mm -hmm. uh, and yes you can find any pick and mix set of verses you like to justify your homophobia transphobia biphobia anything that you want to prove your position of judgment of another person you can find it every denomination every cult every other religion exists and has that possibility if you want to condemn someone from your religion you can find a verse to condemn them with it but if you want to take a step back and look at the principle 
of loving God, loving your neighbor and loving yourself, and then deciding which verse to use to judge someone, it falls apart. So, you know, so I like that idea of love being uh, at the center of it. But if I go to, like I'll say I haven't, I haven't graced the doors of a church really for a decade, although I did go to some Christian festivals that were LGBT affirming, and I thought these were absolutely amazing because there were Christians from dozens of different denominations there. There, um, there were Jews and Buddhists there, all kinds of people there as well. And it was a festival in the UK called Greenbelt. And I suddenly thought, oh, my gosh, this is much more accepting. Um, there were gay communion services and all kinds of things. But, you know, you know, La- Lady Gaga is in the Bible in the sense that I was, I was talking about the, the, the eunuchs. And there's a passage in the New Testament, um, Matthew 19, where Jesus talking about eunuchs talks about the fact that there are there are eunuchs who are born this way. Um, There are eunuchs who are made and there are eunuchs who choose to be eunuchs. And for me, I love that threefold um, origin story to why some people are eunuchs. So some people are born this way. Now, whether that's gender identity or intersex or whatever else, it doesn't matter. It's all a biblical euphemism. I don't mind it, but it's describing the possibility that some people are born different. Then there was the possibility that some people were made that way, um, whether that's made that way against your will or with your will. That's another matter. And then there are some people who live the lifestyle of a eunuch, whether or not um, they are made that way. Uh, and that means there's that freedom of choice to be who you want to be as well, um, whether that's self-ID or the choice to love anyone of any gender. And to me, you know, the greatest love is the freedom to love anyone of any gender. So I think everyone, if if they're a true Christian, should be bisexual <laughs> uh, at the bare minimum. Pansexual is even better. Um, y- you know, how can restricting who you love be a truly loving position in that sense? Um, the, the Bible mostly talks about heterosexuality because for the sake of the growth of the planet and the growth of a community it needed people to marry and have children and reproduce you know and a lot of the references to marriage and love and everything else was essentially about reproduction and creating a sadly a patriarchal kind of state that would make that keep that intact and that was often referenced around you know ownership of a name ownership of land you know inheritance um you know procreation building of families and dynasties and all the rest if you take that component out of it then people love people and there are expressions of love that seem to go outside of the heterosexual norm uh, you know i mean it doesn't mean that necessarily same sex was happening but same love was definitely same sex love was happening um be that david and jonathan you know with naomi and jesus and john and mary you know <laughs> um love should be at the basis of those interpretations and and, you know and i would say to any christian struggling with their gender identity or sexuality you know unless you start with love you know you're never going to end your inner turmoil shame guilt or whatever else (laughs) go ahead yeah so um, you could tell i was a preacher once it's it's absolutely fascinating to hear you talk about it this way especially because we we did mention we had an interview with a rabbi as well so it's interesting to see those different but also quite similar interpretations of the same text and the takeaway i think from here is that you have to read the bible in its original language um and and interpret it as you as you will and as I mean, as like you yeah. said, as love would dictate. I think it's a lot about um, understanding that the difference between spirituality, as you said, and the 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 the, the conviction that that people can have um, that there is something else out there and uh, divine power, whatever how they want to call it, mm. and how they relate to it themselves. And then there's religion, and religion is mm-hmm. also made by uh, I was going to say men as humans, but also men as men. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's and that uh, and there's a difference between spirituality and religion because of that, and that if they wanna, uh, they 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 wanna live their faith, they can because 
because there's, there's a text in the original and to actually um, uh, empower themselves by uh, trying to know more and understanding uh, what is the origin of the religion that they are following. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And that's why but, uh, if you start with the position of biblical infallibility, that kind of idea mm. that everything is God-breathed, God-inspired and God-written, mm. and it cannot be wrong, yeah, no. then you are trapped. Mm. But if you start, as I said, with the idea that God is love and then human beings wrote that down and expressed it in various ways and in various times they didn't get it, <laughs> and yeah. sometimes they did get it, um, then that gives you a, a different perspective. But, but there are hugely um, liberating passages that you could have come out of the i mean if you think about the, the civil rights movement in america it was christians mm. that kind of led it but it was also other christians that opposed it mm. and it and it just goes to prove that two different groups of christians can take two different takeaways you know from the bible um but you could imagine these words coming straight out of martin luther king there is neither slave nor free in galatians three twenty eight. but the same passage also says there is neither male nor female mm. Yeah. So again, it's liberating potentially around gender. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, carry yeah, on. Yeah, I think that the, the experience that you had, you, you first um, talked about of this uh, this person uh, having this uh, hunch, intuition, divine mm. inspiration about your gender, um, and what they did after uh, was that is a very good illustration is that there's this reality um, that you've experienced that I actually have also myself experiencing in that same um, or the same order. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, where there's this uh, conviction reality that 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 deep intuition that that there is something else and that you can have uh, you can feel it in different ways and then there's what yeah what people do with it and that that intuition should have, could have been that 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 what that person got about your gender in the womb could have been very helpful if it had been. Used oh, for self-acceptance. Absolutely, a hundred percent. Had I had I been in a group of people who were LGBTQ affirming, mm -hmm. and they'd had that same piece of knowledge, and there are charismatic gay mm -hmm. Christians, etc. Mm -hmm. So they could have said, "I feel God is saying your gender has been confused in the womb," and and not that God now wants to heal you of that, but yeah. God wants you to embrace that. Yeah, and that's you know, it's, who you it's are. A complete, yeah, exactly. The application can be completely different, particularly if you go back to, well, let's apply it with God is love. Mm. How would God want to lovingly accept a child who is born who is different? Well, by accepting the difference, not converting them to a gender role mm. or to a gender stereotype, you know, or a sexual stereotype. Um, you know, we are male and female and every shade in between. Again, the rabbi would have said this from, from Genesis. It's not we're not created male or female, which creates a binary. Mm. and an impossibility and uh, a fence that goes down between the two mm. but we are created male and female and the hebrew word and there has so much flexibility of meaning um, um that it mm. it's like male and female and every shade in between um and one of the things that christians remark upon is the fact that you know jesus mm. goes into the temple and jesus on the cross etc breaks down the barriers and breaks down the barriers between Jew and Gentile, the barriers between slave and free, the barriers between um, priest and laity and the barriers between male and female. Yeah. So those binary boxes and all those categorizations of people yeah. are allegedly in Jesus act on the cross broken down and the yeah. temple veil was rent in two and the, and the various categorizations and degrees of access within the temple were taken away. No yeah. longer can only the high priest see God. Now everyone can see God. No yeah. longer can the men be a part of the, the main core of, of, of a synagogue or temple access service. Everyone can be. There's no division between male and female, not yeah. men on the left, women on the right. Now anyone can sit where they like and people of any gender, including in between or change gender can also yeah. be fully present and in relationship with God. So if I was still what I would call an active Christian, which I mm. don't identify mm. as anymore, but if I were, that would be my message. Mm. And I could get all of that from the Bible without a problem. But yeah, there would, I could also choose to find a whole bunch of verses that were quite judgmental and I could condemn everyone to guilt and shame, as I've said. <laughs> yeah. It's about choice.
Mm. And it's what we do with it. And people who can condemn others then propagate self-condemnation because the people who hear those messages then go on to condemn themselves. I would say that people who have a very literal interpretation of the Bible and who are struggling with it would have a lot to think about after listening to you speak, which I think is kind of the work of a preacher. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, I've always said to people, you can take the Christian out of the preacher, but you can't take the preacher out of it in that sense. So I'm now a preacher of human rights rather, and, you know, and human acceptance rather than the preacher of Christianity per se. Um, so I'm still an evangelist, but it's not specifically just Christian good news. Now it's just good news for humanity, of humanity and of communal self-acceptance around everything sexuality gender mental health um you know nationality religion faith occupation the lot so yeah i don't you're right i don't think i've ever stopped being a preacher (laughs) thank you very much for talking to us and um hope to speak to you soon again yeah yeah that's that's brilliant i've loved it thank you very much all right bye-bye That's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to us on SoundCloud, iTunes, follow us on Twitter, on Facebook, and send us an email if you'd like to share your story about how religion influenced you. Till next week. Bye.